0: Okay. All right. The Revelation of Jesus Christ Part 18. Chapter 1, verse 12, and I turned to see the voice that spake with me, being turned, I saw seven golden candlesticks, and in the midst of the seven candlesticks, one likened to the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to his foot, and girt about the paps with a golden girdle. Imagine, I mean, I don't know how you do. do you imagine John on the island and hearing the voice as the sound of a trumpet and turning and seeing? first things he sees the seven golden candlesticks, and now he's seeing one like a Son of Man. John saw Christ as he really is. This one who stood amongst the candlesticks proclaiming that he's the alpha and the Omega? This isn't the same Jesus that he laid his head on. This is the glorified Jesus, not the lowly Jesus of Nazareth. But John sees one, like and unto, and this is, we mentioned this a little bit last time in the King James. It says the Son of Man, but that definite article is not in there in the original text. In most other translations it says like unto a Son of Man. So what is John really saying? So we can take note that what John saw was a vision, a picture, a representation of what he saw was someone who was like a son of man. This is a term here, son of man, you know, brought out in the book of Ezekiel. And Jesus called himself the son of man. John sees someone in human form. It was a personage that bore the likeness of a man. Had head and hair and eyes and hands and legs and feet, all in the form of a man. Yet the one he saw was more than just an ordinary man. He saw one in such surpassing Surpassing majesty that he didn't hardly have words uh, to describe what he saw. This one was so great and brilliant and radiant and awesome and overwhelming and, and, and glorious. He had the features, the appearance of a man, but there was an aura, a glory, a, a majesty that transcended anything, a natural man. So who was this person that John saw that day on Patmos? Was it not the same one that Peter, James, and John on the, went up into a high mountain apart and was transfigured before him? For You remember how they described it? His face did shine as the sun. His raiment, white as the light, exceeding. White as snow. Almost the same as the one John sees right here. In the midst of the seven candlesticks. And you know it's none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. Who's been raised from the dead. Glorified. Who dwells in the light which no one can approach. Saul. Saul. Of Tarsus saw him on the road to Damascus. and this great glory so much it blinded Paul. Caused uh, John here to fall on his face as dead. But how do we know for sure that this is Jesus Christ? Well, he identifies himself. If you go over to verse 17 and 18... When I saw him, a fellow at his feet is dead, and he laid his right hand upon me, saying unto me, Fear not. Look how he describes himself. I'm the first and the last. I'm he that liveth and was dead. And I am alive forevermore, amen, and have the keys of hell and of death. I mean, of course, this is Jesus Christ. What is this book? It's the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, a lot of times it's, it's hard for us to get our thinking around this, but it'll help our understanding if, to see that there's an individual here as well as a corporate sense of this one in the midst of the candlesticks. Now, we know that Christ is one, even Jesus, but we know also that Christ is many-membered. I mean, the body of Christ, many members make up one body. So I want you to understand that there is one Son of Man, even Jesus, but there's also a many-membered Son of Man, even the sons of God. Because all through the Scriptures, I mean, you know, we've said this many times, it's only two men mentioned, Adam and Christ. You're either in one or you're in the other. As in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. Only two men all through Scripture. Now, this is something I want you to to think on. I remember John sees right here in the midst of the seven candlesticks. One likened to the Son of Man. In the midst of the candlesticks. this one who walks in the midst of the candlesticks. I mean, he, he says that in, uh, in Revelation 2, 1. The angel of the church at Ephesus write these things, saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, who walketh, that, that, that word means continually, in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. Remember, this is a book of symbols. So each of us, in a unique way, walks in the midst of the candlesticks. It'll be a great blessing uh, for us to understand how the Lord Jesus, the Son of Man, clothed in the garment of His priesthood, because that's what He is right here, He's given His priesthood garments. With eyes of discernment like flames of fire. With burning feet of judgment like in a brass that's heated in a furnace. Two-edged sword of his living word flashing out of his mouth. Walks in the midst of each of us whom he has redeemed. Now, uh, I, gotta, I can't remember for sure. Yeah. This uh, seven-branched candlestick was made of uh, a piece of gold, beaten gold. Now we have studied the tabernacle a lot, and it's so important. I was talking to a guy today, and and you know most people when they go over into the New Testament, they never, you know, it's it's like the Lord gave us this 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 much of the book and then throwed it all out like oh we don't need it but I mean he's telling us he's giving us pictures here all through the scriptures and then Ezekiel sees the new covenant temple he describes it in an old covenant language but I love how he ends the whole book of Ezekiel behold the city of God the name of that city is what the Lord is there so you know there's three parts to this tabernacle or the temple. You had the the outer court, you had the holy place, and the most holy place. Now the candlestick was the light of the holy place. There was no other light in the holy place. No other light, either natural or artificial in the holy place. The light of the outer court was the natural light, the sun. And the light of the most holy place was the Shekinah, uh, the glory of God. But in the holy place, the light originated from the indwelling all. Now, I want to go to Exodus 27, just two verses here real quick. Concerning the candlestick and the oil. Now listen to this. Verse 20 and 21 out of chapter 27, and thou shalt command the children of Israel that they bring thee pure olive oil beaten for the light to cause the lamp to burn always. In the tabernacle of the congregation without the veil, which is before the testimony. It's without the veil, before the testimony, Aaron and his sons shall order it from evening to morning before the Lord. It should be a statute forever unto their generations on behalf of the children of Israel. In other words, Aaron and his sons. You remember, uh, Levi had a lot of sons, but Aaron and his sons had this special work. Now, we know Aaron was the type of the priesthood because he was the... Or a type of Christ because he was the high priest. So the, the high priest and his sons had to order to keep this lamp burning always. To keep the wicks trimmed, to keep the oil going. And Israel was commanded to bring pure olive oil always to keep the lamp burning. Now see, when we grew up, we didn't know that we had the Holy Spirit always. And we would talk about the candlestick being the church church. And in the, in the Old Testament, the light was always burning. But in the New Testament, somehow, I guess the light goes out. We know it don't. The whole, in, in the holy place where this candlestick is, and the table is a showbread, and the golden altar of incense, the light originated from what? The indwelling oil. We know that indwelling oil is Christ, it's the Holy Spirit. And, and what John sees here in the midst of this light giver, what I'm calling the light giver here is the candlestick, right? Because the candlestick is giving off light. In the, in the midst of, the, of this light giver stands a glorious one in the likeness of man. And this one is walking in the midst of the candlesticks. We've seen that in Revelation 2.1. Now here the throne is not seen. It's It's... It's Jesus and the churches alone with each other. And it's Jesus under the figure of the priesthood of old that was responsible for the state of the candlesticks. That's the reason I I read that to you. Aaron and his sons were responsible for the candlesticks. Now here's the Lord himself, the high priest of our profession... And those who walk with him in the Spirit, tending, trimming, and replenishing the lamps. Aaron and his company, his sons under the old covenant, were appointed to look after the seven branched candlestick throughout their generations. They were to order the lamps, I read it to you, evening to morning. Which were to burn continually without the veil of of the testimony of the tabernacle of the congregation. These things, these outward things served till the seed which is Christ came in his new covenant. Who abolished the old, who abolished the outward, the outward worship, the outward priesthood as well. And in the generation of Christ and the new covenant, the members of His body have become the temple of the living God and the candlesticks and the lamps and the lights of the holy place of the Lord. Do Do you see all that? I mean, all of that old was a picture. I mean, imagine you're a Hebrew when you hear... Of course, uh, Paul said it to the, to the Corinthians, but imagine here and you are the temple. I mean, these Hebrews has got to be going crazy. Wait a minute. That's our temple right up on the hill right there. Given to us from, from God through Moses right there. We, we know that. Now you're saying, we're the temple? Wait a minute. In this very book of Revelation here, he calls the seven churches the, the, the seven golden candlesticks which seven here's a perfect number the the completeness of the redeemed you're complete in him and Christ the high priest doeth enlighten the candle which is what the the, the spirit man in the candlestick Christ walks in the midst of these candlesticks in his heavenly fine linen and Heavenly golden girdle, his hair white as wool and snow, eyes like flame of fire, feet like fine brass. Out of his mouth goes a sharp two-edged sword, his countenance as the sun shining in its strength. So what is this? Here is Christ walking in the very spirits of new creation men. Whose spirits he's lighted with his holy and divine and eternal fire. Who are destined to be transformed, spirit, soul, and body. And here he exercises his offices, one of his offices, to take care of the candlestick, to keep the light burning. For he's king to rule in their hearts, priest to reconcile all things within them to the nature of God. To save the soul and redeem the body that he may offer his people without spot or without blemish. Remember, that's what Jesus presented to himself without wrinkle or spot. It wasn't the candlesticks that called unto John. It was the one in the midst likened unto a son of man. Let me back up here a little bit. When, when I say here is Christ walking in the very spirits of man, you, you know, we say this almost every time out of Galatians. Paul said, when it pleased God, let me, let me go back over there, to reveal his son in me. I just, I just want to see that. Uh, in Galatians chapter 1 verse 15 and 16 but when it please God who separated me from my mother's womb and called me by his grace to reveal his son in me I mean this is exactly John has given us a description of this very thing that happened to to Paul happened to John and John was commanded to write To write these things down. Paul said he was separated from his mother's womb. Who was his mother? His mother was old covenant Israel. Uh, From the time Abraham was called out of the land of the Chaldeans and they they become a nation, they carried the seed of Christ. They bore in them so, I mean, it was looked at as one person, this woman, which, you know, we'll see later on down in this book. This woman, she bear a son. She bear a full-grown son. So, Paul was separated from that to what? to When God called him by His grace to reveal His Son in me. Do you remember the Song of Solomon? The, the, the woman, the Shulamite woman is looking... Where's the beloved? Where's the beloved? She's looking all over for him. She can't find him. She's asking everywhere, where's he at? And then she remembers. Ah, he went down into his garden. The scripture says that our souls would be like a well-watered garden. Where does he dwell? In his garden. Where's his garden? In you. All this picture language. And that's what this book is about here. So it wasn't the candlesticks that called into John. It was one in the midst likened to the Son of Man. Now, I don't know how you look at this little term, in the midst, but how intimate, how strengthening, how enlightening you remember the voice of God called to Moses. You remember where uh, Moses is on the backside of the desert and he's keeping sheep. And he, he comes up to the bush that's burning and yet is not consumed. And God calls to Moses out of the midst of the burning bush. And later he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Do you remember uh, the, uh, the fourth man walked free in the fiery furnace with the three Hebrew children? It says he walked in the midst of the fiery furnace. God dwelt in the midst of the camp of Israel. God dwells in the midst of, of Zion. He dwelleth He that dwelleth in the midst of thee is mighty. It's the place which Jesus took as master of His disciples. It's the place he took after he rose from the dead. He's the lamb in the midst of the throne and of the elders and of the four living creatures. The tree of life is in the midst of the paradise of God. You remember Matthew, everybody quotes this verse that so they forget this one little part. Matthew 18 and 20 where two or three are gathered together in my name. There I am, what's it say, in the midst of them. Now, we look around at the church, and I I could use this comparison because even today there's an argument over who's Israel. Now, some people call it a replacement theology. This is not replacement theology. Israel is Jesus Christ. He is Israel. It's not a people, it's a person. Now, you remember the argument Paul made because he said they that are of Abraham are, are, are not all Abraham's uh, seed. He talks about the seed being Christ, but he says they that are of faith. So, I, I make that to say that even now they're... they're You have these two going on, I mean, we could do a whole series on who is the church, what is the church, who's the real church, who's not. Because there is a false system out there called Babylon. And the Spirit of the Lord has drawn a clear distinction between the Lord's people and the system that so many people are involved in. And it's clearly revealed in this book, as we come along, you will see a a separation made. Uh, Not only takes place in us. Now, here we have seven churches, yet they're carnal churches, They're, they're in a mess, but the Lord walked in the midst of them. Then there was a great city called Mystery Babylon, the Great, out of which He called His people. Remember, come out of her. Don't be partakers with her, which he burned and destroyed with fiery judgments. And in chapters 2 and 3, we see the conditions, these seven churches, good, bad, positive, negative, commendable, reproachable. But the Lord is in the midst of every one of these conditions. He walks in the midst of the churches, in the midst of their love, in the midst of their strength, in the midst of their patience and faithfulness, and also in the midst of their weakness and faults and failures and rebellion. The Lord is there in the midst of every condition. If He didn't uh, get into the midst of our condition, we'd be of all men most miserable. We'd be hopeless. You know that? We kind of grew up thinking... Uh, you know, the Lord can't look on sin and he can't, you know, he's got a, all this. Man, if he doesn't get involved, we're a mess. That's it. We're, we're done. We're, we're hopeless. And these seven churches here, uh, we'll get into this more as we, we get on down the line. And a lot of people call them seven church ages. It's not. We have an identity in these same situations today. None of those seven churches are out of existence. What I mean is, I know there's not a church in Ephesus today or Laodicea, but I'm talking the conditions. They represent the the sevenfold condition of the church throughout the age. The seven, that's why it's mentioned. You know, everybody... Everybody, I mean, anybody that's been in the church for longer than a month has heard the Laodicean church. Because it's, it's the one that's always preached. Nobody, or maybe a, a one, but nobody ever says any of these other churches. What about Church Smyrna? Nobody even knows about that one. Or church of Philadelphia. They have no idea what happened there because everybody says, see, it's almost over, Laodicean. But we have those conditions. All of them go on in the church today. Every generation has had these same conditions mentioned and manifested in them. The identified marks of each church is still in the earth today. Now, the the negative conditions represent conditions of carnality and error and unbelief. and, And there are things that must be overcome. Each one of those things listed, we'll get to they got to be overcome, and the, and the positive conditions are blessings and privileges and attainments that must be apprehended. When I say apprehended, uh, it's, you know, I hope on our lesson of the challenge of prayer, we see that there's a land. Go in and take the land. Go in and take it. Go apprehend it. Go in and get it. That's, that's what I'm talking about here. And Christ is walking up and down in the midst of the candlesticks. Now the candlesticks are the light of the Lord in the churches. They are the sevenfold Spirit of God. The seven lamps that burn before His throne. And the seven angels are His lighted Word. uh, The anointing of life in the midst of His people. Because as we go through, man, there's a lot of symbols, and he is—he's walking, and he has the keys of death and of hell. It's—you uh, know—when I, I say these things, and I sometimes I think, well, you have to clarify everything you say. We know he said it's finished. Jesus said, you shall know the truth, and the truth will make you free. You shall know the truth. Now here, Jesus, I mean, he says, I have the keys of hell and of death. He has the keys. Keys, what do keys do? They unlock something. So we we could say he's uh, loosening the, the the prison houses and setting the captives free. But then at the same time, we say it's done. Because he said it's finished. So Satan has been bound. I mean, we, we've, we've shown that. So how is it? So So are the people free or is there another work to be done? Because people, you know, they can't get... Are we really seated with Christ? Paul said we're seated with Christ. But yet... So how how do these things take place? Well, you shall know the truth. Who is the truth? Jesus Christ. How do you know the truth? The revelation of Jesus Christ. In that revelation, you're made free. You, you see Him for who He is. What He's done, it's finished. So you're not free until you know Him who is the truth. Even though it's done and Satan is bound and the prison doors are, are loosed. Uh, uh, I, I think of that... That picture was Samson, and he's uh, he's sleeping. I, I think it was on maybe it was with Delilah sleeping, and they, uh, they call the enemy the Philistines are there, and he jumps up and he runs up and grabs the gates, bars and all, and runs up to the top of the hill and smashes them down into the ground. And I always think of that picture. In my mind, the, the the gates of hell, I mean, he just wiped them out, you know, and he, nothing could hold him. But you're not free until you know him. Now, let me, I, I'm, on a, I'm on a founder for words here, I know I am. Let's, I'll try to give you this in a picture of the tabernacle. Now, we got the outer court. Now, the outer court, we know that we have the brass altar and the laver. And in the holy place, we've got the candlestick, the tables of showbread, the golden altar of incense. Then there's a veil. And then behind that veil is the Ark of the Covenant. Inside of that Ark of the Covenant, Aaron's rod that budded, the golden pot of manna, the, the testimony, the, the, the commandments. The ark beaten to one piece of gold, the cherubims over the top of it. The Shekinah glory, where God says, I'll meet with you. Now, the Hebrew writer says, and Paul says, Let us come boldly to the throne of grace. That's, that's going from the brass altar all the way into the throne of grace. And Paul says, We're seated already right there. We're seated there because our head, Christ, is already there, but this is the one thing I want to I want to make mention of, and this is why it's so important that when when Paul says in Ephesians, I, I got to read you this verse. I know you know it so well. Ephesians four eleven. He gave some apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers, for the perfecting. Of the saints. Now listen, Paul is the same guy who says you're already perfect. He says you're complete in him, but yet he says for the perfecting. Is he contradicting himself? And he goes on to say for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come in the unity of the faith, of the knowledge, this is its intimate knowledge, of the Son of God into a perfect man unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. I always like to think, and I know you guys uh, know this too well, I always like to think of an acre, and inside of that acre is an oak tree. It's a full, giant, 200-year oak tree is in that acre. But it's got to be planted, and it's got to be taken care of, and it's got to grow and, and be strong. For the perfecting of the saints. Let me. You know you had to be of a certain age. In the priesthood in the old covenant. Before you could do certain. uh, uh, Ministry duties. Even though you was a Levite. Or a son of Aaron. You had to be. You know at 20 years of age. You went into the apprenticeship. And you couldn't do those duties. Until you were 30. So. What you'll see here is, in, when you're in the outer court, you can't go on into the holy place until you fully apprehend everything in the outer court. That's why so many people, will say, are stuck. Because they still think they're an old sinner, because they haven't apprehended the brass altar. And that brass altar, I mean, Paul got it. I'm crucified with Christ. That old person I was is gone. And see, you can't move from there even to the laver. What did the laver do? The laver says you're clean. Jesus says you're clean through the word I've spoken. Now, you know in the, in the old covenant, there was no way that you could go into that holy place unless you were born of the right lineage and that you had on the right garments. Well, see, that's the work of the the brass altar and the laver. Now, once we get inside of there, now we've just now come into fellowship, into communion with God because there is no bread out here. Right? There's no bread out here. There's no communion. Communion is up here. Now, still yet until we can fully apprehend, comprehend the candlestick and the oil, and the golden altar of incense and the table of showbread, we can't go on to the next level. Now Paul says, when Moses is read, there remains a veil on their heart. But he says, that veil is done away in Christ. And when it shall turn, the veil is gone. So see, it's already done, but yet Paul says the veil remains on their heart. So which is it? Is the No, Paul says there... They got to turn. When they're turned, they'll see it's done. So you can't. You know when the scripture says they all shall know the Lord? This is the part that I'm talking about. Because before, none of them could know the Lord because they could never, never get to where he was. He was in the most holy place. So you the brass altar was it. Most churches today are still at the brass altar. And they haven't apprehended. The brass altar, they still got a mean, judgmental, God-punishing sin. They can't see the burnt offering remains there always, burning day and night. And even if some manage to apprehend and comprehend to make it into the holy place, they think it's a dark place and it's not a dark place. See, you haven't come into the light yet until you come into the holy place because that's where the light is, where the real light is, the light of the candlestick. So that's what I'm talking about here. It's done, but it must be apprehended. The inheritance is ours, but it must be taken. That's why he says he gave these things here. these, These ministries, apostles, prophets, evangelists. For the perfecting, for the growing up, for the maturing, for the edifying of the body of Christ. To bring us into this knowledge, into a perfect man, into the measure, the stature, the fullness of Christ. That we be no more children. He says what? Toss to and fro with every wind of doctrine. Now, that brings us to this phrase here, son of man. I want you to get this. I want you to get it. What does Jesus mean when he calls himself son of man? Now, this is a term that we're going to be looking at for the next couple of weeks because this is so important. And I'm telling you, Genesis, people, you know, when, I, when people read Genesis and preach on Genesis, they just give you a few little stories, you know, out there, no one, and all of this other stuff. And that first chapter, golly, that first chapter, second chapter is full. I mean, that is the foundation here of the, of the book. When when Jesus calls Himself the Son of Man, He means that He was born from that realm of the true, I'm going to use this term, manhood, humanity. Formed in that state of being in which the first man dwelt before he sinned. Now remember, He walked with God in the garden. Now, Jesus stepped right out of that prophetic, spiritual, creative dimension where God said, Let us make man in our image and after our likeness. Jesus was the second man. To be fashioned in that realm of true manhood. When God said let us make man in his image and after our likeness. The first thing he did was make man and breathed in his nostrils the breath of life. That man became a living soul. But this man Adam was created in his image and after his likeness. In that realm there was no sin yet. Yet at that time he was a physical Manifestation, And now here's the second man to be fashioned in that same way. That's why he had to be born of a virgin. Which is the image and likeness of God in this physical manifestation. He, he's the second, now get a hold of this, he's the second representation of God. He's the last Adam because the image of God as seen in the first Adam disappears in Christ. His, his image and, re, and, and representation, you know, we could say representation. His image and representation of God actually destroys the image represented by the first Adam. The first Adam becomes obsolete. Because the second man, the last Adam, replaces him. Now, being the second man of God's manhood creation, he's called the Son of Man. Does that that make sense? Or the offspring of God's uh, manhood idea. Now, the first Adam... He stepped forth out of the creative mind of God's ideal of of what man was supposed to be. And Jesus was the second man to proceed out of that creative manhood ideal of the Father. And as the second man, He's the Son of Man. The second of an order. The second revelation of the image and likeness of God. He's the second revelation of the image and likeness of God. Birth from the the manhood mind of the Father. And this man being tempted in all points, like as we are, yet was without sin, is the image and likeness of God, restored in man. And from that position of sharing our humanity while not Inherently partaking of our sin and death, he became the perfect sin offering. And he also became the new federal head of the race of redeemed man. So what is an image? An image is something which is formed, it's a a re- representation, representation of something, it's a likeness, a a true image would be that which correctly depicts the appearance, the form, the nature, the character, the being of whatever it stands for. A, A true image of God would have to be a true expression of who He is, of what God is. Today we have false images of God. Whether they be idols or concepts or ideas or actions. They're all manifested out of the carnal minds of men. The man's darkened understanding. The futility of man's minds. According to their own darkened understanding. So men have a distorted image of God. Now, now man is supposed to be the image of God. And what an awful... You remember... All of these things you'll you'll see you go back I think who was it Jeremiah or Isaiah which one was the potter and and the clay and the potter and the image and it was marred Marred in the hand of the potter and and Adam was supposed to be the image of God and he destroyed that which it's, with his sins. And, and so men today have a distorted image of God and, and this image is not, can't even begin to be corrected again until you spend time at this brass altar. Many preachers portray God today as vengeful and vindictive and unforgiving and unmerciful and judgmental, demanding laying heavy yokes upon his people taking away your salvation at the moment you slip and many other monstrous images but thank God Jesus brought a true and correct image of God I mean that's that's why we I wanted to go to Hebrews for this for this one verse right here who be in the brightness of his glory the express image of his person Hebrews 1 3. He brought a true and correct image of God by faithfully walking out the true and divine manhood, what man was supposed to be. You know, I've said a thousand times, Jesus was the prototype. Actually, Adam was supposed to be the one, and he messed it up. But when I say the prototype, it's the same walk you and I are supposed to have. And, and, you know, we, we, we go around this mountain, we stay in this babyhood stuff all day. I mean, that's why there's pastors and apostles and prophets and teachers and, and all of these things to, for the perfecting, for the growing up to say, come on. Jesus expressed the concept of true manhood when he said. Now listen to this. Here's what true manhood is. Jesus said, I and my Father are one. Now I'm telling you what. The Jews took up stones to stone him because they thought he was calling himself God. They, they weren't able to discern the image and the divine state of true manhood. People today still can't get it. I was talking to a guy the other day and I said this is, this is the problem. And the same problem they had then. They could not believe the word became flesh. They could not comprehend the creator of the universe would become flesh and dwell among us. They, no way. He's too big. But that was the whole purpose was for God and man to be joined together. So when he said, I and my father are one, they wanted to kill him. They couldn't, they couldn't discern the image, uh, the, the divine uh, true manhood. Now, Jesus wasn't going around telling everybody he was God to exalt himself or way. Anyway. I mean, when they tried to make him king, he went and hid. He was teaching man and restoring the knowledge of man's true relationship to God and his purpose. By teaching that God and man are really one. Now that's hard. That's hard. I mean people can't get a hold of that. But I'm going to tell you, John, he wrote this. But I mean it, he He wrote this. Uh, I mean, it's all through here, but. John 14, 20. At that day, you shall know that I am in my Father, you in me, and I in you. Now listen to this. In John 17, 21. That they all may be one. That they all may be one. I saw one. How many did you saw? I saw one. I saw one like a son of man. I saw one that they all may be one. Now, how can all be one? You see, our minds can't comprehend that all is one. I've got all of them. How many many you got there? Well, I had 14 footballs. I got 14 footballs. I got them all. But that ain't the mindset of their thinking here. He said that they all, no matter how many the all is, may be one. As thou, Father, art in me. See, he's telling us the true relationship here. And I and thee that they also may be one we're at. In us. That they, the ones who believe, may be one in us. That the world may believe that thou hast sent me. And the glory which thou gavest me, I have given them. Who's the them? The one. That they may be one, even as we are one. Now where are we one at? In him. God and man are really one. I didn't say that I'm God. Jesus wasn't going around saying he was God. He said he was son of God. He was son of man. And he says, I and my father are one. But they assumed he was taking the place of God and took up stones to kill him. But he's saying, no, you missed the whole image. The whole image uh, is that God and man joined together. And, And not only that, he's showing that the value of every Person who has ever been created, born, whatever you want to say, was God Himself. The value of every person is God Himself. I see that's that's a mouthful to get a hold of, right there. Because we we place value. I was looking today, and I say, oh, their net net worth. Oh, their net worth three hundred million. Their net worth one million. Their net worth forty billion. No, the value of every person is God Himself. Now, I'll put a number on that one. So it didn't matter that the truth of our real nature had been hidden and covered and buried beneath the the load of sin and its consequences. So what is and what has been happening since John and, and, and Paul and since the pouring out of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, is that a great light is dawning in the consciousness of man by regeneration, lifting people's be- eyes beyond what they can see to discover the reality of Christ, whereat within you, to identify with that holy thing which is called the Son of God. You know, that's what He told me that holy thing that is in you. And which is just as truly the Son of Man. It was in man, which is the highest of God's creation. You remember in Psalms, you made him a little lower than Elohim. Not the angels, as King James says, it made him a little lower. What is man that thou art mindful of him? It was was in man, the highest of God's creation, that God placed the invisible things of Himself for display. And now we are being conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. Who is Jesus Christ? The second Adam, the the second man, the, the last Adam, the image of God that Christ has given us. Why? To reveal the heart and wisdom and nature and power and glory and love of God to every order of the universe. Worlds without end. You remember he says this, all shall come to know him. And this is the purpose of God in man. I mean, this is, you know, we have said this in so many ways. I mean, the challenge of prayer, the whole, the kingdom come, the whole thing, the revelation of Jesus Christ is always that that knowledge of Him, that glory of Him through man would go forth, that the earth would be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God, which is seen where at in the face of Jesus Christ. I will quit with that. Amen.